Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. everybody, J.J. Cooper, Matt Eddy on another Baseball America playoff podcast after a wild Sunday. It was, uh, it was fun. It was gripping. It was dramatic. It was controversial. We will be talking about uh, inadvertent balls being knocked over the fence for probably days and maybe years to come. And we want to talk about it today. But we're going to look at this a little differently, maybe. We're not going to spend this entire podcast talking about We'll talk about it, but we're not going to spend the entire about ground rule doubles and how many bases a batter should a runner should be able to advance and, and all that. We'll get to it, but we want to look at some other aspects, but we are going to drill down on yesterday's Red Sox Rays game, probably to the to the largest degree of what we're going to talk about from the weekend, because that was a game for the ages. That was a game that had a little bit of everything. And Matt. <laughs> That, that was a game that I needed a couple of innings after that before I really even flipped over to White Sox Astros because it was just so good that I almost needed to decompress a little bit. I don't know about you, but that's kind of that game was had a little bit of everything I'm looking for in a postseason game. It did lead changes, a late tie. Um, and being on the East Coast, I'm very thankful that game started at four Eastern time rather than eight. <laughs> <laughs> so I could actually watch and enjoy the whole thing. It was nice that way. It really kind of ended up working out that a five-hour, 14-minute game went right <laughs> into the prime, prime time hours. It also did mean that, I, I, I will admit, I had to go back and recap the end of that White Sox-Astros game last night when I woke up this morning because we both have kids. We both had to be up relatively early in the morning, and I didn't even try. I knew that it was just not going to be possible for me to be a functioning human today and stay through the uh, entirety of that Astros White Sox. I will own that. I did recap it this morning, see what happened. But, but, but Matt, I, the thing I wanted to really talk about today, because you brought this up last night and I had not thought about it enough. And once you did, I couldn't help, but couldn't stop thinking about it that one of the interesting things that is going on in this Rays-Red Sox series is we know the Rays have long been a team that never puts the same lineup out there twice. They have seemingly a combination for any pitcher, any situation, then the lineup's going to get shuffled along. That said, you could also call this 
a platoon lineup, a lineup that has clearly some right-handers who you want to face lefties, some and, and vice versa. And we saw that yesterday. And, and when, as soon as you brought that up, I'll give a little history lesson. I have been fascinated by this going back to when I got my 1986 Bill James baseball abstract, uh, which is many a year ago, but, uh, but I'm old. And in that, not surprisingly, since Bill James was a Royals fan, there is a, a book inside the book about the Royals winning the 85 World Series. But it doesn't just talk about the World Series. It talks about the playoffs as well. And there is a long digression in that about the 1985 ALCS in which the Royals beat the Bobby Cox's Toronto Blue Jays. And the point that was really focused on in that was effectively the the platoon situation with with the Blue Jays. Because in that series, the Blue Jays had a couple of platoons they had Molinix and Garth Yorg, but probably most importantly, they had Cliff Johnson and Al Oliver, both of whom had really good ALCSs for them. And the point of all that came down to is, is that the Royals had Dan Quisenberry, who was this elite reliever for them, but he was a side armor. And really what it came down to is, is you ideally wanted to get Quisenberry facing right-handed batters and you at all costs wanted to avoid having him face left-handers. And what happened through that series was that very intentionally, the Royals would do things earlier in the game to flip those platoons to, to ensure that they basically got that late game matchup of Quisenberry against the, against right-handed hitters and not with the option of bringing in those lefties from the platoon who are coming off the bench. Always at the time I was a young baseball fan, that was eye-opening to me and something that really stuck with me. I think it stuck with you as well, Matt. Well, yeah, this is, yeah, that, that is kind of a downside of, of platooning in a, in a short series is, you know, a team carrying some left-handed relievers like the Red Sox, I'm sure it didn't escape their attention. You know, they have Josh Taylor and Austin Davis pitched in the game an effort to get some of these potent left-handed hitters out of the Rays lineup. Um, and two of those hitters were batting third and fifth. Um, you know, Austin Meadows is dangerous against right-handed pitchers, not so much against lefties. Uh, Boston gets him out of the lineup and they gain about 220 OPS points between Meadows and his substitute Manuel Margot. So pretty big advantage, especially when you position that third in the order um, and a similar phenomenon um, at fifth in the order when uh, G-Man Choi comes out, for Yandy Diaz, it's about 150 ops point loss difference for the Rays. And we saw these guys come up repeatedly, you know, especially against Nick Pavetta of, you know, the Red Sox long reliever and not really be able to, to get the, the key hits. Um, so the shades of the 1985 ALCS that you're talking about, but also kind of the risk of, of relying on platoons in the middle of one's batting order. It, it really did stand out because as you said, they betted three, third and five in the order. This wasn't, this seemed like they often came up in situations throughout the later innings of this game where the Rays needed one key hit and they just, it was exactly the matchup that the Red Sox wanted to have in those situations. 
And it often ended up being the situation where there, there really wasn't another choice at that point. And I love how you put it. It is the, there are advantages to tuning, but at the same time, I, I do wonder now as we go further in this series, if you know this, if you're the Rays, do you kind of give up uh, a matchup in an earlier inning to say, you know what? We look at this Rays, I mean, this Red Sox pen, we want Austin Meadows to get those late inning at-bats against right-handed pitching. Do you, do you kind of almost forfeit or say, we're going to take the disadvantage now to not flip this line? That will be a fascinating question because like, you know, if you do save those, if you want to get those right-handed pinch hitters in, they would probably make more of an impact later in the game. Yeah. I'm not, are the Red Sox carrying Darwin's and Hernandez on this roster? Cause they have him as well during the regular season. But um, I'm checking. But yeah, that will be right something <laughs> that will be something to watch going forward. And, you know, it did happen at the bottom of the order as well. The Rays uh, subbed out Joey Wendell for Jordan Luplo, who, you know, Luplo, his entire career has been made on um, being short side platoon. So him having so many right on right um, at bats in this game, batting ninth, it didn't have the effect of the magnitude of the other ones, but it did have an effect, um, especially because, you know, it seems like the eighth and ninth were up with runners on base a lot for the Rays. It happened to be Zunino and Luplo versus Pavetta, which didn't work out too well for the Rays. And they had three lefties in the pen, I believe. Uh, Martin Perez, Austin Davis, Josh Taylor are the three that the okay. Red Sox had. But okay. I, I do think <laughs> you, you would almost like, if I'm the Rays, the, the counterpoint to this is you would almost like to bait them into using some of those guys in late inning situations. If I'm the Rays, mm-hmm. compared to some of the right-handed options they have, you would much rather face them than, than face, uh, you know, Robles or Whitlock or credit to what he's doing right now, even a Pavetta. Um, it will be, that's a fascinating aspect. We're going to have to watch over the last one, you know, or two games of this series. The other part of it, let's take it to the pitching. The other part of the pitching side, which is we to game four, we may see the downside of, of the, hey, we're going to use our bullpen heavily in a series. We could see the downside because for really for both teams, it's probably going to be less than optimal uh, pitching situations because both teams had to go so heavily to their pen. A lot of guys who pitched yesterday, I will imagine, could be brought back today. But for instance, in the Rays case, we're five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine different pitchers pitched. Luis Patino was expected to be a key part of kind of a game four situation. I don't know if he is now. He, he threw the last uh, 1.1 innings of that, had to get up, was up, multiple, up and down multiple times. It will be interesting to see how either team kind of deals with the fallout of that now. Yeah, no, I agree. But and I think um, <laughs> we were joking beforehand that they should be thankful it's a, a five-game series so they don't have three games in a row. That that would be truly devastating. Um, yeah, I, want, I wanted to get your thoughts about Zunino batting with runners on second and third in the top of the 13th inning, two outs. Like, to me, I, I, I could definitely see, you know, Zunino is just such a bad 
hitting matchup for the Rays versus Pavetta, who who was able to locate four seam up and expand with a slider. I, you know, somebody like Francisco Mejia, the the backup catcher, might have given the Rays a, a better chance to get a hit there that could score two runs. That my thinking. Then he can come in and catch, or you know, <laughs> what did you think? So I do think that teams often get a little bit in trouble by going too often too early in extra innings to too aggressive. Uh, the example to me is, is if Nelson Cruz reaches for you in the 10th, I don't want to pinch run for him in a tie game because of the idea that as we've seen happen, multiple cases, Nelson Cruz probably you know has a good chance of coming up. Now, again, if he's, if the situation is one that warrants this run, there's a, I'm not saying there's never, I would want to pitch run this situation, but I would rarely want to do so. That said, it's the 13th. As we've talked about this before we got on the pod, we've talked about how you get to the 13th inning and being the, having coming up in the top of the inning is a real disadvantage. It is a significant advantage to be the home team that knows that you can play your strategies based on what the team did in the top of the inning. Are we playing for a one-run strategy or are we playing for, you know, we need multiple runs? You can do that. And that said, in that situation, yeah, I probably would have thought about doing that. I probably would have gone with Mejia because yeah. at that point, Zanino's power <laughs> especially when you throw the matchup, but Zanino's power is less important than his ability to make contact. Yeah. Two outs from around third. Yeah. And like, I was practically screaming on the slack, you know, put G man toy back behind the plate. If you have to, you know, do <laughs> anything to get a new hitter in here. But G man has <laughs> already been removed from this game because, uh, you know, there, there are no re-entry rules, but, but right. You had Mejia. And in that situation, if you said, putting the ball in play is the, and is the most important aspect here because a ball on play on the ground, a ball in play, the outfield, if it drops, it's two runs. And that would have been massive in that situation. But it, <laughs> the other part that I think we have to talk about from that game and from this series is Wander Franco. <laughs> Wander Franco it's not surprising that this moment's not too big for him. I sometimes think that we can get too caught up in, oh, how big is the moment? But there isn't. These are humans. This is not, uh, these are not robots. This is not a simulated game. There is something to be said for players being able to handle the pressure of a postseason series, especially when you are the youngest player in, in, in Major League Baseball. This moment is not too big for Wander Franco, clearly, but we also, I feel like we are seeing, he did it both offensively and defensively yesterday. We are seeing the reminder of just how good Wander Franco could be down the road. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> like you said, the moment was not too big. Uh, the, the key home run to get it within run, one run, and then, oh man, at least one key double play he helped turn. But credit to Jordan Luplo, by the way, also in that in that late inning play where Franco didn't get a whole lot on the ball from the from the hole. We do see that Wander Franco has many many great attributes. 
having a, an 80 arm is not one of those. But Luplo did a really good job with the scoop that basically preserved the game. The game would have been over at that point. If he fail, if that ball gets by him, the game's over. Credit to Jordan Luplo, who's not really even a uh, uh, he's not been a first baseman by trade for most of his career. That's the flip side of you see Kyle Schwarber doffing his hat, offering a reminder of how difficult it can be for an outfielder slash catcher in, in Schwarber's case, you know, ex catcher to go move to first base. It's not, it's not just as easy as maybe some people think it is. Um, we're going to touch on at least briefly on some of the other games real quick, but before we do that, we're going to stop for a quick message. And we're back. So we, we did have also the White Sox rallying last night, coming back against the Astros to keep that series going. That could have been, we, we will not have a, an AL or NLDS sweep this year. We have already been granted we are guaranteed that each of these series will go to at least game four. I feel like pretty confident we're going to have some game fives as well, which if you're a baseball fan, yay. But Matt, as we look today, today is yet another of the all baseball, all the time days. We have games starting at one, going into long into the night with Giants Dodgers tonight. Who, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll ask it this way. I'll start with. Who is the team that you think is most likely getting ready to roll on to the AL or NLCS? Is there a, a matchup here where you look at it and say, okay, I feel like the Red Sox are getting ready to finish off the Rays. I feel like the Astros are getting ready to finish the White Sox. Or I feel like that the, the Braves or Brewers or the Dodgers or Giants is going to take this 1-1 split and, and run away with it. Well, yeah, I think the Astros for me look very, very good. Um, and I didn't realize it, but if, during the telecast last night, they were saying how uh, they're the like the second team or the first team since the 1970s athletics to to, have, to potentially go to the LCS round five straight seasons. Uh, that had kind of escaped my attention, but they they look fantastic. So I would probably have the most confidence in them. Was that the ALCS or any LCS? Because that's... That the, the Braves are an interesting uh, discussion point with that because how much does the uh, – because if you go back to the 90s, they went to one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in a row, but there was the strike that mm -hmm. killed the 95 season in between. So – or 94 season, I should say, the 94 World Series in between. So <laughs> – so there, that is accurate to say that they have it because there was no 94 posters. Yeah, that, that is a good asterisk. Um, and also maybe perhaps them at the American League. But regardless, it, it, it had escaped my attention that this will be their fifth if they're able to advance. And and the fifth where I, they have changed over some of the team, they have had new guys come along, Jordan Alvarez, Cal Tucker, very important homegrown additions to this team. I guess in Jordan Alvarez's case, the ever slightest of asterisks there. He was a Dodgers signee who never played a game for any Dodgers minor league team before being traded to the Astros for Josh Fields. But two homegrown guys who've come up. That said, this team is still Altuve, Bregman, Correa. It, it, there's a lot of longtime Astros who have uh, experience from all of these playoff teams or most of these playoff teams in a lot of cases. Who would be your pick most likely to advance? 
I'm I'm also with you on the Astros. I do feel like that was a impressive bounce back for the White Sox. They do have Rodon going. If Rodon could give them a really strong outing today, they could be right back in this going to a, a do or die game five. That said, I do think the Astros right now are just a better team. And that would be my, my pick. I am fascinated to see what happens in the first game we get today. Uh, Brewers Braves. I feel like whoever wins that game today, if you're the Braves, I think it's probably more important for the Braves to win that game. If, if I'm the Braves, I don't want to be going to game five in this series, which would, us, I, I would say assuredly means facing Corbin Burns again. And I, I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. I think Atlanta set up pretty well. They, they play well at home and have really played the Brewers tough, you know, despite being down Acuna and Soroka and Ozuna. They, I think they are a, a pretty formidable team in this matchup. So I, I like their chances. The, the other one I, I want, I, I absolutely positively want Giants Dodgers to go five games just because that is the series that that deserves to go five games. That is the, the clash of the Titans. And so far it, it is a little bit of a bummer that if you're an East coaster, like we are, those are the games that, that take place latest but that said, that, that series so far has lived up to expectations. I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens tonight and, and really throughout that series. Obviously, tonight, if I said Scherzer versus Alex Wood, Alex Wood's been great. I'm liking the Dodgers' chances tonight. Although, that said, Scherzer, as we, have, as we know, has not been pitching as well as of late as Max Scherzer normally does. So. Nothing is in any way set in stone in that series. I just, overall, I, I feel like that so far we are, we are very early in the postseason, but it does feel like we are having a, a series of very compelling matchups. A couple of games I have dragged a little bit, but some compelling matchups. The division series so far for me, Matt, I don't know about for you, but has been everything I kind of could, could hope for it to be. Yeah, I mean, some of the Astros wins were lopsided, but I think every other series has given us um, mostly compelling games. The, the Braves Brewers definitely has, uh, you know, Red Sox yeah. Rays. That that game, that's to me the one so far, though. I know that I, I, I am a, as a child, as a baseball fan, I remember reading about things that happened far, far below before I ever was born and being interested in them, learning about Merkel's boner and, and things like that. I don't know if there's if those books still are put out like they were when I was a kid, but if they are, the updated version I think will have kind of those wild and weird moments in sports. One of them will be, hey, did you did you hear the story about how there was this ball that was going to score runs for the Rays and it hit off the wall, then hit off Hunter Renfro, then kicked over the wall, and that kept the Rays from scoring. That is. We are now getting to this. We are going to touch on this before we wrap up, which is <laughs> that is one of those wild and weird moments that I love about sports overall, which is it was the perfect encapsulation of what makes sports great because we can now argue about this for years to come and there is no right answer. It does appear by all accounts that I can see that the umpires interpreted the rule as written in the rule book correctly. That should have been the way that it was adjudicated. That said, 
we can then spend another hour debating whether the rule should be changed. And I'll ask you, Matt, should the rule, should that rule be changed going forward? Um, I would argue that, yeah, that this could be a flashpoint for a rule change. Uh, Randy Jazeerly made the point very well on Twitter that on any fly ball hit to the outfield with two outs, the runners are going to keep running until <laughs> until the ball is dead or they score. So I think umpire's discretion, I think, um, could easily find that Yandy Diaz would have scored on that ball that Kiermaier hit that was, I don't know, what, three feet away from being a home run, <laughs> hitting off the wall. Um I think 95%, if not more, of base runners would score on that ball had it stayed in play. So I kind of go back and forth, but the thing that does strike me is this is an example of how the rule book was written, understandably, at a different time than we are now. When this rule was instituted, it was at a time where Games happened, every play happened, and there was no way to back up and say, well, what was the situation? You probably are asking too much of an umpiring crew in 1948 to determine necessarily where the base runner was when the ball kicked over the wall. And at that point, there was no, let's rewind it and see. Now we live in a world where every single player, not just the TV cameras they have that are broadcasting it, but every player is tracked at every millisecond by Hawkeye that can say, here's exactly the location of every player at the point where that ball cleared the wall. With that being the case, maybe the rules should be updated to allow for that and to say, okay, you could say that the simplest is at the major league level is to say, we're going to have an addendum for two outs where you say mm -hmm. with two outs, we give you an extra base, or you could say, okay, we're now going to say it's two bases at the time that the ball clears the wall, because we can now say with certainty, here's where that base runner was standing at that point that the ball cleared the wall. We couldn't do that. Not that many years ago, that would have been a recipe for disaster. We still can't do that at the minor league level. But in the majors now, we do have the technology to say, okay, we can change this rule and say, now with the technology we have, we don't have a question of whether this runner had already cleared this base when this event happened. We can absolutely within two seconds back it up. Okay, that's where it was. This base runner had already cleared third. He gets to score. Or this base runner was headed back to second. So he gets to go. You can figure those kind of things out. Is that a is that situation where maybe this is kind of like when we talk about RoboUmps automated ball strike calling that the technology that we have in the game now can lead to potential for changes in the rules at the major league level, even if you can't apply those same things at the minor league or further down on the amateur ranks yeah well yeah the whole point of instant replay is to get it right so i mean and like you're saying two outs would be the only instance this would be used i think because the rule does make sense as written um with fewer than two outs but uh so that's again we'll we'll probably have something else controversial that'll happen <laughs> over the next few days because we have a lot of games to come
but I don't know if we'll have a game that has so many of these fascinating moments as that Red Sox and Rays game from last night. That was just a, a beauty. <laughs> it was chef's kiss out, outstanding. We're going to dive in We're you know, we're getting this one up today so we can get it posted before our four game extravaganza today. We'll be back tomorrow with another baseball America playoff podcast format. I'm JJ. So long everybody. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.